0: This is episode number 152 with Adam Braun of The Founder Podcast. Discover exactly what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur and what's possible through entrepreneurship from the greatest minds in business today. Welcome to The Founder Podcast. Here's your host, Nathan Chan. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm the CEO of Founder Magazine and the host of the Founder Podcast. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. You've been following along uh, this journey that we've been on with Founder. Uh, For those of you that are just listening uh, and are new to the podcast, I started Found a magazine, a digital magazine on the App Store, Google Play Store about four years ago, not knowing anything about apps, publishing, design, magazines, business, startups, you name it. And uh, along the way, um, you know, we launched a podcast and, and have built up this, this platform and we've been lucky enough to interview a ton of super successful founders around the world, uh, many that have shaped the world uh, today as we know it. And, uh, you know, today's guest, he isn't much different, you know, he he's somebody that I have a lot of respect for, he's the founder of Pencils of Promise, Adam Braun, and he's also started a new company recently called Mission U, and, uh, you know, one thing that I've been thinking about on my journey, you know, being an entrepreneur, being a founder for the past four years now officially, is more than anything now i'm i'm actually caring less and less about the revenue we make and becoming super obsessed with the culture the team that we're building at founder and more than anything the mission and communicating that and just kind of building a big picture vision not just uh you know for what i want to achieve and but but also our team and as a company and and this stuff is like actually so much more important, I think, than money. Like, you know, obviously without cash, you can't run a business and cash is the lifeblood of a business and sales is important to us at Founder. But one thing I've becoming really, really obsessed about lately is the mission. And that kind of brings me to Adam's story where Adam builds businesses that are extremely mission purpose driven. Uh, they are businesses that are much bigger than himself, and they may or may not be, you know, for-profit businesses. But at the end of the day, he's building a business that is so much bigger than himself. And and one thing I can share with you guys is is something that I've learned on this journey is it's much more rewarding to build a business and to build a legacy and to make a massive impact in the world. And I don't mean to sound, you know, kind of all spiritual and fluffy around it, but yeah, uh, for me, it's actually been quite a game changing thing to think about these past few months around what the future of founder looks like. And, you know, obviously, we need to grow the business and, and generate more sales to, to do these crazy things that we want to do and, and build a household name entrepreneurial brand that helps tens of millions of people on a monthly basis. But yeah, I'm caring more and more about the vision more than ever. And I think you'll really appreciate adam's interview and our conversation around what it actually means to build multiple social enterprise that are extremely mission-driven and actually how to start one you know we get this question a lot people want to know people want to hear from more social enterprises so adam's a brilliant brilliant guy and he shares a lot with us all right guys uh that's it from me uh, if you are enjoying these episodes please do take the time to Leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening. Uh, I know that us founders, we hang out with other founders. So please do share this with a friend if you have enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes. It helps more than you can imagine. And it will help us grow the brand and, and get closer to our mission. So that's it from me, guys. I hope you enjoy the show. Now let's jump in. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job?
1: Oh, how did I get my job? I, I created it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think since I was a little kid, I've always had this desire to to kind of build things in the world that I thought could, you know, add value to the well-being of others and and ideally, you know, enable me to, to have the opportunity to keep working on those things um, in the future on a personal level. And so, you know, my current job is is as CEO and co-founder of Mission U, and that's a, a venture that you know uh, first lived in my head when I saw a real problem in our society with higher education, and so I went about, you know, building that into reality.
0: Yeah, gotcha. I see. And can you tell us about your first, I guess? entrepreneurial venture how did it all get started because as we were talking off air pencils of promise you're quite well known for that and uh, you've done some amazing things built I don't know is it thousands of schools now
1: now it's over 400 schools thousands of classrooms
0: classrooms. yes okay gotcha thousands of classrooms yeah so you, you you've made an incredible impact on the world but I'd like to understand you know how you really got started into the social social enterprise space
1: Sure. Well, I mean, my, my, my first entrepreneurial venture that I could ever remember was probably when I was in middle school and I started to really get into music and, you know, there was this thing back then, uh, this kind of big bootleg community with certain, you know, websites or certain bands that you would follow, there was always kind of live versions of their shows being posted. And there's something called, uh, B and P's blanks and postage, where if you send somebody, you know, six blank, uh, CDs, they, they would kind of burn the latest, you know, concert that they might have, and you kind of find the person with the special concert that you wanted or that you had been at personally. And if you sent them return postage, they would mail back to you. And you know, I, I built up this pretty great collection of live music concerts. And then um, eBay rolled around, and I thought, you know, some what would happen if I offered to sell, you know, a couple of these these concerts to maybe you know a wider audience? And next thing I knew, you know, I was getting anywhere between probably twenty and seventy dollars for some of the shows that I had. And all I had to do was burn a disc and mail it out. And so when I was in middle school, I was, I was making like thousands of dollars um, on, on eBay. And I think that was the start of, of this kind of journey where I recognized that, you know, regardless of your, your age, you shouldn't, you know, view yourself as, as uh, limited uh, in terms of the, the outcomes of what your effort can generate. And, you know, certainly over time as I, I kind of aged and matured you know, a lot of that that kind of entrepreneurial focus um, shifted away from, you know, how can I generate some money more so than my chores were creating for me or, you know, the, the kind of local handiwork I was doing at some of my neighbor's houses into, you know, how could I use these kind of tools that I was developing to really make a, a lasting and meaningful positive impact on the lives of others?
0: Mm, I see. So was Pencils of Promise your first uh, big, big venture that you did or did you run other businesses before that?
1: So, you know, I, I grew up really interested in particular working in the finance industry. And so I, I, were, I had internships and kind of jobs at at hedge funds and institutional banks starting when I was, you know, 16 years old. And so so I, I had exposure to big companies. Yes. Um, you know, the, the kind of formative entrepreneurial experience that I had before Pencils of Promise was I, I was a basketball player. I was recruited to college to so play basketball at Brown University. And even the the summer before I entered College. Um, some local parents who you know, knew me through the success of my high school team uh, approached me and asked me to give private lessons to their kids, and you know I, I did that. I made you know some coin, and and the next summer I, I uh, had one parent approach me and say, "Can you do a clinic?" So you know for uh, my son and and you know eight, eight kids in total altogether, they're all teammates on a team. Maybe you can teach them all together, and I thought, yeah, the economics of this are better. I'll charge each of them half of what I would have charged a private lesson, but it's eight of them, so I'm making four times as much money. And then I ended up writing a business plan for a full-scale basketball camp. And a college professor of mine really encouraged me to pursue it. And so I built in college what became the largest basketball camp in my county. And, you know, it was the first time I'd really, you know, open up a bank account and, and, you know, managed the staff and hired people and, you know, kind of envisioned something, you know, larger than, you know, kind of side hustles almost. If I think about what I did in middle school and high school, this was the first real business. And, you know, over time uh, it generated real money. And, and that was kind of the first thing that opened my eyes to the abilities that you can you know, create as a founder, as an entrepreneur. And, you know, when I started Pencils of Promise, it was partially because I, I put my basketball camp to rest. I stopped running it once I started working at Bain uh, after college, you know, one of the, the world's leading consulting firms. And, and I was just used to having something on the side that that kind of brought, you know, excitement and inspiration into my life. And my grandmother was turning 80. And she was a Holocaust survivor, and I wanted to find a way to build one school and and honor her in a meaningful way in her lifetime, let her know that her legacy would carry forward. And so, you know, the dream was really just to build one school, to start an organization. I I put $25 into a bank account because I was turning 25 that month, and I thought it was a good sign. And that was kind of the bare minimum you needed to open up a bank account. And so with with $25 and and essentially a birthday party and, and kind of the early beginnings of the crowdsourcing movement that we almost predated. And in some ways I think, you know, hopefully inspired others to get into, you know, we were able to raise the, you know, I think 25 or 30, $30,000 or so. And uh, with that, we certainly felt confident uh, myself and some of the others that started to join me in this, this effort that we could build one school. And, and, you know, in some ways it felt smaller than my basketball camp and ways, it felt like so much bigger. And once that, that first school was completed and I spent about you know, four months by myself in Southeast Asia, uh, meeting with local education ministry officials going back and forth to the school that we had identified, it, it became very clear that this experience could be replicated, could be scaled, the the quality of it could be increased. And that's when the aspirations moved from building one school to building, you know, hundreds. And and certainly, you know, that's, that's what we've been fortunate enough to achieve.
0: Mm, yeah. Wow. It's been amazing. Um, uh, a lot of my friends have built schools and uh, mm. it's incredible the impact you're making. And I'm really curious, can you tell us more about the name
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was, when I was in college, that was kind of my first set of formative experiences in the developing world. I'd, I'd really never been in the developing world at all. And I was on this study abroad program called semester at sea. And, uh, when I was in India, a country I had, I'd never been to, I'd never seen poverty, like, uh, the level of poverty that I saw uh, in particular, the way it affected children. And it was, it was really devastating. And I wondered, how could I do something to, to help even one of these kids? And so I had a habit of asking every uh, every country that we went through. I'd find one child and ask them if they could have anything in the world. What would they want most? And I, I thought I'd kind of have this collage of of global interests. And this boy in India um, was a street beggar. And when I asked him what he wanted most, he answered um, very simply that he wanted a pencil. And so I gave him my pencil, and and you know this just uh, kind of light emanated from from his face, how excited he was, and it was really beautiful. And I. Him questions, and I learned that he had never been to school before. And, and that was, you know, both devastating to hear, but it was also kind of a shock. You know, I mean, I figured every kid at some point goes to school. And I started to ask more questions of more kids as I traveled and more parents. And, you know, I always kind of um, heard this notion that the, the single thing that they wanted most was a better education for the future generation. And so, eventually, when I decided to start the organization, it was really inspired by meeting this this one young boy and the fact that I always carried these pens and pencils as I traveled and and handed them out and ran up villages. I was backpacking through, that eventually uh, led to the name Pencils of Promise.
0: Yeah, gotcha. And uh, what happened next when you started it? Because it's not easy. Um, no, it's no, not, not easy. All. And a lot there's a lot of you know charitable organizations and social enterprises. Um, so so tell me how how. How did you spread this message so far and wide? And you have some incredible ambassadors and and people that are on the board. And yeah, so tell me about that.
1: Well, you know, when I when I started, I certainly didn't have a lot of resources personally or 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 behind me or involved. You know, like most things, you know, people can look at it in retrospect and say, Oh, wow, that was that was such a quick success. But, you know, when we began, it was really grassroots. I mean, you know, our first uh, 10 schools were built, uh, through contributions of a hundred dollars or less from people in their teens and twenties. And so we began truthfully just by throwing events. I mean, these were really parties and this was late 2008. The economy was in shambles, especially in New York and Manhattan where I was based. And so, you know, I, I kind of, I think I recognized early on that, that as millennials, we were just different. And, you know, now I'm, I'm 33. So I'm kind of at the top end of the millennial generation, but we were the first ones to be called millennials. And it was because we were just fundamentally different. You know, we kind of came of age with the internet and we also had a really deeply embedded social conscience and, you know, that we wanted to kind of vote with our dollars and, and what we stood for in the world. And so I knew that all these people were still going to go out and, you know, have a drink on a Friday or Saturday night or go to a party, whatever they could in New York, even though not a lot of people have jobs that, you know, 20 somethings were still going to go out. And I just kind of created a better alternative than giving money to a bar. I said, you know, come out and give money to help us build a school. And so that's what kind of drove the the early growth. Um, but we didn't, you know, do any press for almost two years. Uh, I, I was really committed to to not telling our story until it was kind of one of these wow stories. Um, and that meant at least, you know, 10 schools, um, something that could, you know, almost make you feel like uh, you wanted to tell somebody else about it because it was, it was just like really impressive. And, and in my mind, 10 schools was that. And so, you know, I think over time, as we started to do these events, the word started to spread about us. We really also built a, a great community on you know, Facebook in the early days and eventually Twitter and then Instagram. And, and now the organization obviously is growing Snapchat. But um, we tried to engage people and make them part of the story, make them feel valued. Um, you know, we, we were very open and upfront early on about saying that there are more ways to make a contribution than just through your dollars. Uh, you can do it through volunteering, through you know helping us with pro bono services, and and so you know over time, um, just word started to spread, and you know incredible people started to approach me and say, I've heard about your organization from my niece or my nephew or my friend went to your event, and I would meet with anybody and everybody that was interested, and you know the the conversion rate was was low like most things, but you know I was willing to meet with fifty people to find the one kind of diamond in the rough, who was actually going to really commit to working with us. And, you know, some early board members came came on, um, you know, about two years in that were adults. You know, we were all kind of early 20-somethings and, and mid-20s. And finally, it was like, whoa, there's adults in the room. But these were people who had built really powerful businesses. And I think they saw the potential of what we were building and uh, were really, you know, instrumental in terms of kind of getting us up to speed about how to, you know, really run a world-class organization. And then with that credibility, we started to attract more and more you know, kind of talent, um and, and on the business side, on the celebrity side, and one thing kind of, you know, led to another. And and what started with small steps started to, you know, very soon feel like very big steps.
0: Hmm, I see. And when it comes to like, you know, a lot of people do want to start a business, you know, for profit. And I'm curious, you know, how, how does someone structure a business like that? Like when you just got started, like, it's all self-funded by you. Is it self-funded by the people that are making contributions? Like, how how does all that work?
1: Yeah. So, so as a nonprofit, um, you know, in the states, of five hundred one c three is is kind of the tax code. You know, there are certain requirements on on how to register. And again, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was, quote unquote, self funding, but that was like a you know, some I basically personally was covering our administrative costs, which were you know, a couple of state registrations. It really wasn't much. So it was a couple hundred bucks, probably. You know, early on, I mean, I emailed any friend of mine that had worked at a law firm and I said, I don't know how to register. I know that there's some legal requirement here. It seems pretty complex. Is there anyone at your law firm who would be willing to donate pro bono hours to help me get registered? And, uh, you know, out of all the people I, I emailed, uh, one of my uncles who worked at a law firm sent, you know, my email to the entire firm. And one random woman said, yeah, sure, I'd love to help them out. And so we started meeting after hours outside of my job at Bain. And, you know, she helped me kind of put the paperwork together. And then it was just events. I mean, you know, our first event was my birthday party and I asked people to give $20 at the door for a Halloween birthday party and 400 people came. And so we had $8,000. And then, you know, a bunch of people that came to that event said, Hey, this is great. I'd love to get more involved. And I said, okay, join the host committee for our next event. We're going to do a holiday masquerade and it's going to be open bar for like five hours. We went out, we bought all this alcohol and, you know, filled up this big space. Um, and I think it was like 60 bucks on average for a ticket, but 600 people came, uh, for a holiday party. And, you know, we netted out of, I think around $23,000 and it was like, Oh my gosh, you know, we have about $30,000. That's enough to go build a school. Let's do it. And, and so that's really how it began. And then we just continued to do those events until, you know, eventually we, 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 know started to really attract um kind of mid and eventually high level contributors now you know we do an annual gallon it raises between a million and a half and two million dollars in a night wow Uh, so things have certainly stepped up you know we've generated millions of dollars in corporate contributions and foundations but you know in the early days one thing that i found was that there's there's not a lot of kind of um information out there on how to build a nonprofit. everything from that early registration to how do you build a board you know, how do you do fundraising across all the different channels of fundraising that are out there? Um, how do you hire staff? How do you pay yourself when you get to that point? After I wrote my book, a lot of people were asking me these questions. And I thought, let me just actually build a course to teach people how to do it. So, you know, if anyone's listening, and they're actually interested in this space, or they know somebody that is either interested in starting or uh, already has an organization that they want to scale up, uh, you just go to uh, the URL is the it's a course uh, that I built, um, and you know it's been really transformational for now hundreds of people that have participated in it. It's entirely self-paced and has all these downloadable PDFs and templates, and it's really this step-by-step guide. So, um, ten modules. It's it's called the nonprofitplaybook.com, and you know anybody can check it out.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's a great resource. I didn't know that you did that because you're right. Like, I I this this side of things is is completely foreign to me. So, when it came to leaving your job at Bain. When, when did you do that?
1: So, uh, Bain has what they call an externship program. You can leave for six to nine months and work for anybody else in your third year. And it was during the externship program that, that, that I actually launched pencil promise, but I had to come back after my nine month leave. And I had about seven months left on my third year. Um, cause they let me go a little bit even early. Um, and I, I was back for about maybe three months and, uh, I officially left in March of 2010.
0: Gotcha. And then, how big is how big is the team now for Pencils of Promise, or is it all self sufficient uh, by contribution by you know talent uh, or how, how does no no now? so
1: so Pencils of Promise now has one hundred twenty five staff uh, wow. full time employees and that's in five countries around the world so so it's wow. a substantial organization you know I think in the coming year or so we'll pass about fifty million dollars raised. And, you know, we're, we're best in class in terms of the total contributions that go directly into the field. But you also obviously need to cover the staff that's going to support and really guide this work, um, both in the field and from the headquarters. So, you know, we're based out of New York, but um, operations in Laos, Nicaragua, excuse me, uh, Laos, Guatemala, although we have about 20 schools we support through a partnership in Nicaragua. And then we also have an office in um, Ghana and, and uh, a little bit of staff in Liberia.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cause I thought you guys were quite big, but then, you know, when you were saying to me that people were starting to come to you, you know, giving, um, you know, they don't have to donate money. They could donate their, their time or, 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 you know, um, provide services. I was thinking, oh, wow, maybe, maybe you guys aren't as big as I think. And you've got this whole, whole organization running off, you know, people just contributing their time. And I was like, oh, wow. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, well, that's where we started. And, yeah. and I mean, that's my that's my advice to anybody is, you know, you start scrappy and, and understand that maybe one day you're going to have the resources to hire full time staff and, you know, kind of work with the, the um, capital at hand. But, you know, most people don't start that way. I certainly didn't. And so you have to find a way to leverage the talent around you. And so we started all, you know, all volunteer team for, you know, a substantial period of time until, you know, I was the first one to leave my job and then a second. And, you know, over time, we, we started to build out a staff now. You know, we have 125 or so staff, but most of them are, uh, you know, working in the field, and these are people from the countries in which they work. So, you know, they're not on kind of full Western salaries, but they're on local salaries. But that makes them, you know, the biggest breadwinner probably in the history of their family.
0: Mm, yeah, no, that's awesome because then you're also creating jobs as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's really important. To us is is building local capacities in the countries where we work, and you know, um, making sure that, that it's not just Westerners showing up and building schools and leaving, but that all this work is really uh, owned and sustained by locals.
0: Gotcha. Now I know you're working on something new that, um, I'd love to talk to you about, but before we, we switch gears onto mission U, can we talk about like craziest story, uh, time, give me with a good one, something interesting, something, you know,
1: ah uh, geez i mean so so you know i've told a lot of them um over the years one i probably haven't really talked about really ever i mean i wrote about it in my book in the promise of a pencil but i haven't really talked about it in, in an interview in any kind is you know on that four-month trip in in southeast asia at one point i had to uh leave laos because you're only on a 30-day visa so you have to leave and then come back and when i left i ended up going to nepal and while i was in nepal The day that I was flying out um, after about three weeks there, uh, hiking in the Himalayas and like Annapurna Track, there was a full-on basically strike across um, Kathmandu, and like they shut down the whole city and there was just like angry mobs rioting. But I had to get to the airport somehow to fly out, and there was no cabs running, so I found you know one rickshaw driver that was willing to like pedal me on his bike across the city, and I got to this one really big kind of. A crossing area, it was almost like a square. And as he pedaled me right into the middle of it, uh, an entire angry mob of Nepali, you know, men basically carrying sticks, just surrounded me in my um, <laughs> thing, like shouting and shouting and waving sticks. And I literally, my heart was racing. I was like, I'm this is how I die. You know, like they're just gonna beat me and and literally rip me apart and just kill me. And I got out just like, you know, just begging, begging. I mean, all I knew was namaste, you know, and it's just like, namaste, namaste, <laughs> namaste. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll leave. I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't do anything, please. And, you know, um, a man kind of stepped in and, and calmed down the, the main kind of leader of the mob. And um, this kind of rickshaw driver, like, stood up on my behalf. And uh, fortunately, you know, they said, you can't be driven by the rickshaw driver, but we'll let you pass. And they let me walk away. But... <laughs> It was like one of the scariest ones of my life um, and not something I've ever really told anybody.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that, man. So talk to me about Mission U and you, I guess, are you, are you stepping down as the CEO of Pencils of Promise or are you still running both? Um, talk to me. No, yeah. so, sure.
1: so um, back in 2014, I actually started um, to lead the search for uh, the new CEO of Pencils of Promise. So. You know, it took a year um, for us to find the right CEO. We had 700 candidates for the job. I mean, my title was founder and CEO, but those become two very different jobs as you get to the size that we got to. And I was really interested in the founder part where I could, you know, support the vision, but we really needed a day-to-day leader to, to guide the execution. And I wanted to start working on um, higher education, you know, here in the States, a domestic issue that I, I developed a lot of passion around. And so, you know, fortunately, after 700 candidates in a year, we found the right um, CEO. So we we hired our, our current CEO, Michael Doherty. Uh he started in June of 2015. So he's been in place for a little while now and has done just a fantastic job. And, you know, I'm I'm uh my official title is founder and board emeritus. So, you know, I'm still very active with the organization, but not on a day-to-day basis. You know, very fortunately and beautifully it, it runs itself because of the incredible team in place. And and my focus is, you know, very, very heavily now on on Mission U, this uh, you know, new venture that I'm building.
0: Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that, and and how that came about, and uh, what what's exciting that's happening with this with this uh, new project you're working on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, when I met my my wife uh, five six years ago, you know, she she was somebody who grew up in a very loving family with, without financial means, though, and really bought into the belief system that college was her way out. Of, of that, you know, financial status and uh, up to a better place, you know, really the American dream that has been kind of sold for generations. And over, you know, the last probably 50 years, the main pathway there has been through college. And so when I met her though, she had attended college for two and a half years, she had taken on so much debt and so much financial hardship that she had to leave school early to start working and paying it back. And so uh, at the time that we met, she had $110,000 of student debt with no bachelor's degree and you know eventually we we learned that uh, student debt is the only debt in the united states you cannot declare bankruptcy on uh, it is with you for life if you die uh, they actually go after your next of kin because they usually have usually had to co-sign on their loans and so when i learned about this it just seemed like such a massive um, injustice in our society and, and education is supposed to be the great equalizer but it was actually and i believe it is continuing to create a you know a greater divide between the haves and have nots so it was something i wanted to address and ideally create a solution for And so that's really what Mission U is. Mission U is a college alternative for the 21st century. And our aim is to prepare young people for the jobs of today and tomorrow debt free. And what we mean by that is that in this one year program, about 80 to 90% of it happens online, but these are not pre-recorded lectures that you watch on your own time. These are live virtual classrooms with world class instructors that are industry practitioners and you and a small cohort of about 24 others um, in a 25 student cohort learning together real-world skills um, that are incredibly career-focused and you know driven by helping you land that great job. But what we really think is incredibly important is that institutions of, of education should invest in their students rather than vice versa. And so if you get into Mission U, there is no tuition at all. Uh, we commit to investing in you for a full year. And then, if and only if you secure a job at the end of that program afterwards, once you're making $50,000 or more, uh, then you contribute 15% of your income for three years back to MissionU. And that's the way that we're able to run and sustain this for you know, the next uh, following cohort of students. But it's a very um, different model from a traditional college, but it's, it's what we believe is absolutely necessary for the type of student who is not going to be served by you know, traditional higher education today.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's um, a really interesting model. How did you conceptualize that?
1: You know, I, I, I spent probably two years, you know, talking to every person that I could about the challenges of higher education. That meant people in the space. That meant a list of folks that I put together that I called the Dirty Dozen, and these were all entrepreneurs that had uh, built built companies valued, you know, over two hundred million dollars. Um, people that just knew how to build a you know a great uh, entity that really resonated with a you know a customer. And I felt like very little of higher education was focused on the customer needs. They are focused on the the institutional preservation of kind of keeping this college going, even though it, meant it was actually hurting, you know, the students, you know, and, and this is not every college, but I think unfortunately, you know, it's a lot of them right now, you know, in all these conversations over time, you find if you approach them with real humility and, and the acknowledgement that you have some strongly held beliefs, but you don't have every answer and you're looking for their guidance into how you should find the correct answer, you know, you start to coalesce around, you know, very clear questions and so over time, these, these conversations helped me inform, you know, the kind of model that, that I thought was best. And then, you know, I pulled together a world-class team. My co-founder is absolutely incredible. The, the team that we brought around it of, you know, advisors, of backers, of, of staff is really, you know, kind of the best of the best of the best across both academia and, uh, and business. And then we kind of drew inspiration from some of the different things that are out there. You know, the boot camp space has proven that, uh, you know, you can get a, a technical skill and it's enables you to get a job without necessarily a degree. Now we're not teaching coding. Um, our initial track at launch is uh, data analytics and business intelligence, which is this massively growing industry, you know, that every single company needs. Now, it's not just data companies, it's it's media companies, it's, you know, the sports companies. I mean, everyone is is in need of better data analytics and so few people are well-trained on it. That the more time I spent with uh, the business side, you know, the more I realized, oh, geez, they're really being underserved. And then, you know, truthfully, I spent a lot of time with college kids, and I asked, you know, what what appealed to them, and and I kept on hearing that the single biggest problem for them was just crushing student debt. And then on the other side, when I spoke to employers, it was that young people aren't entering the workforce with real skills than and job preparedness. And I thought, okay, how do we how do we create a model that kind of meshes these two challenges for the two different um, stakeholders, and and that really manifested into Mission U. And you know we've opened up applications, so anybody can just go to Mission U. It's, it's the letter U uh, at the end. Um, so Mission uh, with the letter U.com and you can apply. Uh, it's a totally open application system. It doesn't cost you a thing. And um, you know I would encourage anybody that's to, to to go and check it out.
0: Interesting. And when do you recommend? At what point during somebody's career should they do Mission U? So, Mission
1: U uh, at at our core, we're we're, we're uh, targeting you know traditional undergraduate students. So, if you're 19 to 25, regardless of of whether you've completed school or not, uh, you know we don't aim to be a finishing school. So, uh, you know if you have a bachelor's degree, uh, we're probably not best for you. Um, we're we're looking to truly replace the bachelor's degree. So, um, I would say any any 19 to 25 year old that probably has not completed their bachelor's degree yet or hasn't even you know started down the college path and is looking at you know the amount of time and money that you're going to have to spend to get a piece of paper that may or may not help you get a job i would encourage you to check out mission u again it's a one year program and clearly based on uh, the way that we've structured it you know at the end of that year our expectation is to you know help you enter the workforce directly and not have to you know go back to school right away
0: got you i see so hypothetical um, cuz this is a this is an interesting model does this does this model exist right now for any uh, kind of educational institutions or any anyone that's doing you know a similar kind of service offering that you're doing right now? Is this a completely untested like model?
1: So there are pieces of what we're doing that are being used by a bunch of different institutions. I don't think anyone structured it um, in its entirety in the way that we have. but you know, for example, the, the income share piece where you don't pay tuition up front and instead it's, it's based on, you know, the success of you getting a job, mm. uh, Purdue university, which is a very large leading university, you know, here in the States. Um, you know, Purdue university obviously, uh, is, is world renowned and they have a, a, an income share opportunity called Back a boiler. So they've pioneered this for a few years. They ran it as a pilot. It was so successful. They're, they're expanding it this year. You know, there's a couple of, of the kind of hardcore coding camps, in the Bay area where or, or I'm based where they do this as well. So, you know, we're not the first to do it, gotcha. um, but we're, we're certainly, um, ones that are advocates of it and, and plan to help expand it nationally. Uh, I think you'll see a lot of other colleges taking this on. I mean, Australia as a, as a country has income based repayment for, for students, um, based on their college experience. You know, the, the online model that we have, you know, there's companies like 2U and Minerva that have done things that are similar. So I would say, you know, every piece of what we're doing has been probably, you know, inspired or uh, related to something that we've seen and, and we really think is, you know, really strong. But no one's certainly kind of put it into the form that we've, we've created. And we think that, you know, part of that is because there's a real need for, you know, the, the type of student that we seek to serve um, to have a new choice.
0: Yeah, gotcha. No, because um, I find this interesting uh, because you know business models, you know, they, they can change. Um, I was going to say, but the more you you mentioned Australia, you know, the more I think about it, you know, we have something called hex here, and it is actually similar. But yeah. You have yeah, you have a student debt, but uh, you know, if you earn yeah, I think it's if you earn over a, a, a tax bracket, you owe. You know they'll take a, a percentage, so it's in in fact actually very very similar to what we do here in Australia. So no, it does yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. No. Um. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I I've still got um I've still got a hex debt. Um. It just comes out of of uh, my 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 salary every year, but um. Yeah, I've uh, I've got two college degrees and have never really did anything <laughs> with them. So no, I, I understand. I've heard that many times
1: before. Yeah,
0: no, I understand. <laughs> I understand your, your your frustration around this problem and why you want to solve it. So my my question is, I guess, how do you plan to grow this business?
1: Um, so so every cohort at Mission U is is similar in that there are always twenty five students. Um, you know, we don't want to have the equivalent of a large lecture hall where you're kind of sitting in the back and no one's paying attention to you. So you're always in a 25, 20 to 25 student cohort. But the way that it will grow is both in, you know, three things. One is frequency. So, you know, the first uh, class begins in in, um, September of 2017. And so, you know, we have an open enrolling application process. So at any point in time, you can go on and apply for either the current or or the upcoming uh, class. But the first one is September. And then, you know, we have cohorts that start every quarter. But then you can expand into new geographies because the only physical requirement is you have to live within 50 miles of your cohort's um, primary city. And that's so that you're close to uh, one another, um, so that you're aligned on time zones for these live courses because, again, they're not you know, pre-recorded. And then the, second, uh, the third excuse me, is that you're close to the employers that we are going to be helping you, you know, uh, secure interviews and eventually jobs with. But we plan to expand into many, many geographies. So, so that's the, um, probably the second part besides cadence. And then the third part is um, new concentrations. So at launch, it's it's focused on data analytics and business intelligence. But, you know, we're continuing to do a lot of deep research on where the market opportunities are, uh, in particular for young people uh, with skill-based training. And uh, so we anticipate really becoming a true college alternative over, over time that, you know, much like college, you choose your major. Uh, as you uh, enter Mission U, you'll have the opportunity to uh, choose various concentrations.
0: Yeah, wow. Okay, interesting. And is this... Um, the structure of this business is a, a non for profit social enterprise. Um. So, so it's a public benefit corporation.
1: Um, so, B Corp. I mean, it would it would fall, I guess, in that construct under social enterprise. Um, yes. So, we're able to raise, you know, venture capital backing, which you know enables us to, you know, essentially advance this model. I mean, if you think about our our, our venture capitalist investors, are almost essentially providing us with scholarships to give to our students (laughs) since we don't charge them tuition. But, you know, as a public benefit corporation, we can raise that capital, draw in world-class talent, but still, you know, hold ourselves accountable to our social mission.
0: Yeah. Got you. Because flow is key, right? Absolutely. Cash is oxygen in a business. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Interesting. Oh, look, um, we have to work towards wrapping up, but, um, I'm curious around, you know, this is a new business for you. You've got a lot of experience that we can draw upon um, as a really successful founder. Um, what are some things that uh, are challenges that you you haven't have expected that you're finding with starting and, and, and getting ready to launch Mission U that our audience can learn from?
1: Well, you know, I'd, I'd say one challenge is is, you know, having, having the humility to come into a space and understand, even though you might have some very strongly held beliefs that you can still learn from those who came before you, you know, so much of the last eight years of my life, especially probably the last, you know, four at Pencil of Promises, you know, we reached some, some pretty meaningful milestones of success. And so a lot of people looked at me as, as an expert in many ways, and then you write a book and it becomes a a big New York Times bestseller. and, And suddenly everyone definitely thinks that you have all the answers. And, um, you know, I, I chose to, you know, uh, start something entirely new and still the education space where, you know, I I wanted to focus, but, you know, going from rural primary education in the developing world to higher education here in the States is a very big leap. And, and I think a, a challenge that, you know, a lot of people face is, is kind of going from the expert to the, the beginner's mindset, right. And, and kind of coming into every conversation with, uh, the ambition to listen much more than you speak. And that's basically what I've done for you know almost two years, and and now finally, you know the 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 Mission U uh, program is out there, and and I think it's going to certainly cause some really big ripples and really help hopefully help um make the higher education system more equitable and more just, and um, help out a lot of young people to to build the lives and careers they want. But you know for for eighteen months before we launched, um, I had to uh, really focus on on being a a, a listener and not a speaker.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, that's key. That's actually one thing I'm learning from one of my mentors who runs a extremely massive business. And, um, yeah, it's all about just learning from people that have done what you want to do and, you know, jump, even jumping on clarity and just, just, that's, that's, that's how you, you, you grow like shortcut success and then shortcut your, to get to your goals.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, hey, look. One of the best ways to become a great listener is to, is
0: to have a podcast <laughs>
1: and, and and ask really good questions, which clearly you, you know, you've been great at.
0: Yeah, no, that's where it's at too. That's another good one. Awesome. Well, look, um, we'll work towards wrapping up. Uh, is there any final parting words that you'd just like to finish off on, Adam? Um, somebody that uh, is a is is a big contributor to society, extremely selfless much more selfless than me, I think, um, to be <laughs> honest, um, any, any parting words and uh, the best place people can find you and find out more about mission you and your work?
1: Sure. You know, I, I think, you know, the, the parting words I would leave anybody with is just, you know, keep in mind that, that you get one chance at this life. You know, some people believe in reincarnation, but this specific life, you know, every single day that, that you are fortunate enough to be gifted uh, into this existence, you get one shot at it. And so, you know, you're gonna end up regretting a lot more of the things you you um, didn't end up trying rather than those that you tried and failed. And so, you know, understand that, that this world is malleable and, you know, you hopefully have some wonderful and aspirational ideas in your head and we need people like you uh, to pursue those ideas with conviction, with integrity, with ambition and, and with bold intent and uh, people like myself will be cheering you on. Uh, in terms of finding me, you know, I'm pretty accessible my email is just adam at ipromise.org, the letter I. So adam at ipromise.org. Uh, if you listen to this and something resonated, you want to share an idea, uh, please feel free to email me. Uh, the course I referenced actually earlier, if anyone out there is building a nonprofit or wants to, is the nonprofitplaybook.com, all one word. The uh, you know venture I've been uh, now focused on and hope to focus the next decade of my life on is MissionU, M-I-S-S-I-O-N-U.com. And my, my handles for... All the kind of social media uh, sites are uh, it's Adam Braun, I-T-S, Adam Braun, except for Twitter, where I'm just Adam Braun and I write blogs and, you know, you can see speeches and talks that I've given at adambraun.com.
0: Awesome. Fantastic. Well, look, Adam, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with me. This is a really great conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on.
0: The Founder Podcast has come to a close, but it's not time to sleep. It's time to hustle. Download the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine for free right now by visiting foundermag.com slash Branson. Again, that's an absolutely free download of the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine containing an exclusive interview with the man himself. It's only available at foundermag.com slash Branson. So download it now and we'll see you next time on the Founder Podcast.